Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, this is the podcast where we talk about plants and why they're cool and we use pipettes to figure out how they become so cool. We look at the molecular biology and explore the mechanisms behind the abilities of plants. With me today is Tegan. Hi. And I'm Joram and I learned this uh, text by heart. No, actually I just read it from here. <laughs> And yeah. yeah, we're both uh, trained Molika plant biologists, and maybe you want to introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah, I just did my PhD actually a couple of years ago, and I'm now doing a postdoc um, in the field of the chloroplast gene expression. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I also did my practical work of a PhD, I have to say like this, because I didn't actually defend it yet. But, How's um, the writing going? It's amazing. My writing is so good. It's the best writing. That's nice. it's huge. That's why we're talking today. So you can <laughs> get away from writing instead of doing the talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I actually, yeah, we, I did my PhD in the same lab as Tegan. And, um, but since then I moved on to do science communication and that's what I do now. But I'm still really much... Um, interested and excited about the world of uh, plant molecular bio biology. I think you should have said that with like a more excited voice, like I'm interested and excited, <laughs> really like emote. It gives me strong excitement. Because like the listeners can't see how much joy is on your face right now, so they really have to like hear that in your voice and be like, <laughs> act with your, yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, but so we started the blog um, called Plants and Pipettes, and you probably know about it if you listen to this podcast because it has the same name, but... Maybe you want to tell our listeners a little bit about why we did that. Yeah, the idea is basically just to explain some of the cool things about plants that are happening on the molecular level. So everything from DNA, proteins, all the magic, magical things that they can do. Um, but to explain it to a more general audience so you don't have to be trained in molecular biology to understand our posts. Hopefully, that's at least the plan. Yeah, and we have lots of pretty pictures that I um, just learned how to Ooh, draw a little self -promotion, bit. self-promotion right exactly. from the start. Yeah, I'm just like, look at my fancy pictures because so far <laughs> you do a lot of the writing because you're much better at that than I am. Ah, so kind. And uh, yeah, and so we try to have a very nice and accessible way into the world of molecular biology but uh, actually we are new so if you if you do read any of our posts and you think what the hell is that i can't understand it we would really appreciate the comments because it's a work in process at the moment in progress at the moment so yeah absolutely we can take notes absolutely um same goes for this podcast there will be an option to comment below this episode so if you have anything to say to to add or to any questions um please uh, in the comments Like, we'll sulk a bit, we'll like not be happy about it, but no, no, we will actually respond, hopefully, and also try to fix our writing style and fix yeah. our speaking style so that it's really clear. Yeah. Yeah, and then on top of this um, website that we actually started planning, what, two years ago? We wanted to, to launch it first, and then lots of stuff happened, and um, now we... Um, dug it up again and uh, used our old notes and added a lot, lots new things. I'm actually, I actually think it, the stuff got much better now with time. We're much better at it now. Um, but on top of that, we're also starting this podcast um, where we want to uh, present you in a more, uh, in a, in a, or in a different format. We want to present you some of the research in the world of molecular plant biology. So it'll be kind of a bit like a journal club. So we'll discuss some of recent usually um, publications that came out which we think are cool and we'll explain to you why we think they're cool and what the kind of interesting um, parts on that and hopefully use the journal club to also touch on some more basic ideas and concepts of molecular biology I think is the plan yeah 
and so yeah we will each of each of us um prepared a paper that we read in the uh, in the past and the other one hasn't read the paper yet and then we'll just sort of present it uh, to each other um I have to mention that I read my paper like quite a while ago, so it might appear that I also haven't read my paper. But I mean, I did I did prepare it at one stage, so hopefully I can remember everything still. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think yeah, and then we we have some other bits for later, and we have so many great plans for the future. But now, <laughs> you're for, for full this, of great plans. Exactly, two thousand and whenever. <laughs> In this uh, episode, we just want to like um, jump into the the papers. Um, yeah, the one thing I wanted to say now, I, uh, now I remember, is that this format is one that is also very common in the scientific community. Like we did in the when we worked together every week or every other week, we had a meeting where we did exactly that in scientific in an academic context. So this is not something that we came up with just for for you. This is something you mean the journal club format, the, idea the journal, of like yeah, exactly yeah. the the presenting of papers to like somebody really takes the time to understand the paper and then shares this knowledge with the others that so they don't have to like go through the same long process and i hope we do something like this and here i should mention that i am actually much lazier than yoram and i am actually using one of the journal clubs that i had to do for work (laughs) and i'm now using it for the podcast so i apologize (laughs) but also yeah (laughs) i am lazy so do you want to start with yours i'll start with mine i just want to make a little side note that if anybody can hear like clinking in the background that's because i'm drinking gin and tonic while we're going so <laughs> sorry about the ice cube sounds Alrighty. so the paper that i was looking at is called quantitative and functional Pro- post-translational modification proteomics reveals that trep h1 plays a role in plant touch delayed bolting and to be honest um the title is very very long but it explains a lot of different things um the basic concept is that this group which is um ning Li's group um, published in PNAS um, in October this year. No, it's last year now, 2018, sorry. Um, a very uh, high quality study where they did um, proteomics, but they did actually phosphoproteomics. So this is looking not just at the proteins themselves, but how the proteins have been phosphorylated. Um, and as you probably know, phosphorylation can change the activity of proteins. So it can sort of turn them on and turn them off and make them able to function or not function. So phosphorylation is is right the attachment of these um, phosphate groups to the protein, right? Like the protein mm. gets made in the cell, and when it's done, to often to to get it functional or also to like regulate its its function, it can get these attachments, right? It's mm-hmm. sort of like add-ons on the protein. Mm-hmm. So that's the first point of the title: the quantitative and functional post-translational modification proteomics. It's phosphoproteomics. Um, and then the second part was that it reveals that TREP H1 plays a role in plant touch delayed bolting. So they did this very large scale study using this phosphoproteomics. Um, it's um, quite a, a, a broad um, thing. And then they focused more on one protein that they found in this study and tried to characterize that one a little bit further. And the final point was that it plays a role in plant touch delayed bolting. And this is actually why I chose this paper, because it involves touching plants, which I think is pretty fascinating. Okay. So, so what is touch-related bolting? Yeah, so the, the bolting is um, just when the plant is about to set um, flowers. So Arabidopsis is our common lab rat plant, and it's basically a kind of flat two-dimensional weed for most of its life. And then just before it um, is ready to reproduce, it kind of puts this like spike up into the air, and that has the flowers, 
which then have um, the yeah. silica. So that's the bulk thing. Um, and the touch related is referring to this um, thigmomorphogenic response. Um, so maybe, do you already know what this is? No, no. Okay, so it's basically when there's the plant has some sort of developmental change um, based on mechanical forces. Okay. And in the wild, there's obviously lots of different mechanical forces, which you know, I'm just going to name a few now. Um, birds that, <laughs> that sit on the flower. Specifically birds, yes, yes, <laughs> birds. No, like animals, um, like passing it by and touching it or leaves falling on it uh, or other objects falling down on it mm -hmm. or wind is wind already enough of pressure Yeah, wind is definitely one of the the things so you can see like trees that bend in response to like currents uh -huh. of wind near the the seaside um something else maybe <laughs> i'm like doing hand motions to try and like i'm yeah. charading what he should be saying right um, now uh uh, uh shower curtains <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> yeah <No. right. laughs> rain or snow or like any sort of yeah. precipitation from from the air from the sky yep so um that's that's a lot of them then there's also um things that come from the plant itself so like um cells kind of exist in this like continuum so the mechanical force from one cell can actually exert pressure on another cell so, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's other things like gravity so um, like just the weight of the plant can uh -huh. have a response um, and of course like physical barriers so if you think about the roots of the plant they're growing through the soil and the roots might have to change direction um, if they hit like a very large rock or something like this they yeah. have to go yeah. around it um, and of course, the final thing can also be scientists. So this you kind of touched on animals, but also like us just poking at plants <laughs> to see what happens. It would be a very bad evolutionary adaptation if you would rely for your growth on scientists coming around and touching you. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, there's nothing that's like naturally human pollinated, but there's a lot of things that like do rely on animals to come but, and like touch them to like yeah. survive. So it's not so far-fetched. Yeah. Um, actually, this the response to scientists is mostly negative. So it's mostly this delayed bolting, which we mentioned. Yeah. So they, they flower more slowly because they keep on getting harassed by <laughs> people like us. Um, and with this thigmomorphogenesis, so this touch-based response, there's there's two types. One um, is a thigmotropic response and one is a thigmonastic response. And the thigmotropic response is um, when the direction of growth actually changes based on how the touch occurs. So this mm -hmm. a really cool example of this is like when you see um, a vine which is growing around a pole. So depending on where the pole is, he will grow and wrap himself around it. So he's actually mm -hmm. putting different directions at different points mm -hmm. of his growth to get himself wrapped around. I'm really anthropomorphizing these plants now here. He. <laughs> I've been in Germany too long. I think of all nouns as genders. And in fact, that was even the wrong gender for German. So. I'm giving we're them just, we're just going like to to swap them around like we're doing like properly yeah i'm making them people but i'm making them even the wrong gender of people for a german okay um and the second response so that was um thigmotropic when it grows in a certain direction and the second is thigmonastic so that's when no matter where the touch comes from the response is pretty much the same so mm -hmm. um this is like mimosa touch me not so no matter where you touch it it always has the same thing where it closes um the leaves up yeah i don't know if you guys are familiar with it and the other obvious example is like anything like a um a fly catcher where it kind of snaps yeah. closed so it doesn't matter where you touch it it can't have any option apart from snapping closed it can't suddenly like snap to the left or snap to the right it has to like yeah snap close to kill the bug um and when i was first looking at this article i was looking at a really nice um review by janet brown and from what i can tell janet brown is pretty much like the lady in this um 
in this field. So she's really um, produced a lot of great work on touch response in plants. And she wrote that touch responses of plants can capture the imagination as such behaviours are unexpected in otherwise often quiescent creatures. Um, and also that the touch responses can turn plants into aggressors against animals, trapping and devouring them, mm. which I think is like a very beautiful way of putting it and a nice amount of drama. I mean, it is interesting because we think of the plants often like these sort of inanimate objects that don't really move. Like, uh, there's a few examples like the, the fly traps or the mimosas that are often cited, but there's so much more where they actually respond with movement to their environment. It's just way slower than we can usually perceive it, like the root growth, right? Yeah, and I think that's also from like, when I was in high school, we learned about these different signs of like what it means to be a living organism. Yeah. And it's like reproducing and like, um, like respiring and all these kind of things. And one of them is like growth, but one of them is also movement. And it's a little bit like, misleading when it comes to plants because people often like yeah as you said they don't see plants as moving and it makes us focus much more on animals and like yeah our kind of organisms instead of looking at these really awesome organisms but um yeah, yeah. so some examples of this um figmomorphic response is of course the fly catches which i already um mentioned um and these are really cool because they can snap close to capture a bug but then also the movement of the bug once it's been captured then has another touch response where this movement actually stimulates the um, release of digestive enzymes. So in mm -hmm. struggling, the bug like makes himself get devoured more rapidly. Mm. Um, there's some other cool examples. So there's something called a drosera. These are like fly catchers. So they look like a kind of a tennis racket with lots of sticky tentacles coming out of it. And again, they like wrap themselves around a bug the second it comes um, into contact with it. There's also water bladders or bladder warts, I think they're called, um, utricularia, and it has, um, it's underwater and it has basically a, a hollow structure and a little um, a tentacle kind of thing sticking out. And as soon as the, the this tentacle gets touched and triggered, it sucks itself in and like makes this negative pressure, which sucks all the water in. And then it like pulls, like physically pulls the water around it into the mouth basically or the bladder of this, this um, organism okay and the final example i wanted to give was a orchid um and this orchid when a bee comes towards it um the male throws its pollen at the bee like really aggressively <laughs> and it does it with like such force that that bee is then really, <laughs> traumatized for <it's>, life <laughs> like actually legitimately traumatized but it's, it's it's a um mechanism for this orchid because that bee then doesn't want to go to another male flower it doesn't want to get pollen from anything else because it's been <laughs> hit so hard so it only goes to like it like stays away from like where it sees the pollen so it, it's 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 actually like making that that flower is going to be the only father of the the, the yeah. future offspring so it's like it's a really cool um <laughs> process in the end I, I never heard that. That's that's scary and amazing. <laughs> yeah, you should read the, some of Janet's work. It's very nice. The bee traumatizer. Mm. Okay, so when we're talking about um, the kind of responses that we had, apart from these like really obvious cases, which like I discussed, and these are like quite these are specialized cases. These fly catchers and these um, very aggressive plants. But generally, when you talk about like touch response, you're talking about changes to a normal plant in response to wind and rain and stuff, and you get things like changes um, in the height of the plant. That's very common if you have wind and this makes a lot of sense because you don't want to get too tall and then be snapped by the mechanical forces. But you also get changes in things like flowering time, in uh, dormancy, senescence, uh, also chlorophyll content, drought resistance, um, low temperature resistance, 
how much your stomata, which are the holes that kind of let in the, the gases for photosynthesis, are opened, and also pathogen resistance. So there's really a wide range of, of responses that you mm -hmm. can see. Yeah. Okay. Um, and when we look at what causes these um, responses, there's kind of short-term things and there's long-term things. So we know that the touch responses can happen in the, the process of milliseconds to seconds, but they can also then result in prolonged changes. So this milliseconds to seconds is a very rapid signaling mechanism, which is calcium signaling. Um, so often, yeah, calcium basically uh, flowing rapidly throughout um, mm. the, the tissue, which kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a very common signaling um, in yeah. many organisms. Um, and also reactive oxygen species. There's different like um, signaling molecules. But then of course, to have these longer term changes, these signals then signal something to be changed and the changes occur with certain um, proteins. So I think again, back to Janet Brahms work, um, back in the 90s, uh, she and uh, Davis came up with some TCH proteins, which I imagine is how you like say touch if you're thinking in like 90s kind of like mm -hmm. SMS test, like you just get rid of the vowels, so touch proteins. <laughs> um, I, yeah, back then when, when we had limited space for our text messages, yeah. Yeah, I mean also like as scientists, you usually have to come up with a, a name for a protein that's like yeah. three letters or something. Yeah. So this is kind of like, it's like clearly still touch proteins if you, yeah. if you say it fast enough, touch proteins. Yeah. Um, and they already found things which were um, involved in the signaling. So they found um, calmodulins, um, so things which are involved in like calcium binding and these like um, signals. But then they also th found things which are like downstream of that. So a lot of things involved in like developing cell walls and kind of developing like the strength of the, um, the plants. So cellulosynthases um, and also expansions and extensions. So things that are involved in changing the, the shape and the size of the, mm -hmm. the plant cell. Um, yeah, and they also found in a more recent study in 2005, Lee et al. discovered that um, over 10% of the genes encoding kinases and transcription factors are also in, increased in touch-stimulated plants. So that's kind of the basis of the study that I'm talking mm -hmm. about today was that they, they found that there's also some sort of kinase link, which brings us to our phosphorylation of proteins so yeah. kinases are yeah just so to explain that like the kinases are proteins that can attach these phosphate groups to other things often to proteins right like the um i hope i don't get the basics that too wrong but they uh, um yeah a kinase is often involved in these sort of signalings because we have these short-term signalings like you said the calcium um or uh, reactive oxygen species uh, signaling this you can imagine that like a like a burst of a release of a certain molecule molecule or ion like calcium ions or um reactive oxygen species are like um, oxygen uh, atoms that have uh, more electrons than usual so they're very reactive and that's where the name comes from and these are released in sort of bursts and then they can be repeated and then it's it sort of forms a wave at one point it started and it, if it reaches a threshold this wave can travel along for example a route um, and a little bit similar to what nervous tissue does in animals, um, but different because it's uh, not electrical signals, but uh, these molecular signals. Um, yeah, so in these short-term waves have to be translated into something that's a little bit more long-term, right? And that's why they looked at the, or they saw these kinases coming up um, in the studies so that these these um, kinases can then trigger, be triggered by short-term 
signaling and then transfer that into a medium to long-term signaling uh, by changing yeah. something that can't be easily undone. And there's usually going to be another something else in between the, the signaling and the kinase. So something's usually like getting that message and then translating it to the kinase. But yeah. yeah, of course, with most signaling things, you end up having lots of different players on lots of different levels all intermingling with each other. Yeah. Anyway, um, back to the paper that we're talking about. Um, one of the first things they did was testing the touch, which is basically they're looking to look for um, changes based on touch response in Arabidopsis, which is our, our model plant species, um, which most scientists use. And the first thing they had to do is to make sure that that they had a good experimental setup, basically, for touching the plant and inducing changes. So they used one of these things that's already known to change when you touch plants, which is um, bolting time. So how long it takes for Arabidopsis to make this um, bolt, this uh, kind of long sticky thing for the flowers. Um, and they tried um, different treatments of touching. So basically you have a student or a postdoc <laughs> like poking at the plants um, with their finger or with a, a cotton tip, the kind you use for like your ears. Um, and they just basically saw at which stage the touching would um increase the days until bolting so have mm -hmm. this negative effect where the plants like hey stop touching me like I, yeah. i'm not sure if i should flower yet because i'm being touched too much yeah um and they also checked that their touching was sending these calcium signals which are, are well known to be involved and this is where they use quite a um a cool molecular biology tool which is called aquarin so you might already be familiar with gfp Yeah, uh, GFP is a protein um, that comes from jellyfish and the name says green fluorescent protein and this pretty much describes what it does. Um, you, you shine some light on it and it ref, uh, emits light in a different wavelength and this is what you use in many experiments to um, see specific processes going on. It's a marker protein. Yeah, um, so aquarin is actually, I think it's from the same species of jellyfish either, even Um It's a protein that's very similar to GFP. It, it glows, but its specific property is that it glows when it has calcium. Mm. So you can actually use it to see these calcium waves or these calcium signals because um, it's only going to glow once the calcium goes through. So the authors of this paper also touched their plants and then looked to see when the aquarin, this, this calcium-dependent gl glower, actually um, emitted um, a signal. And then the final test they did of their thing was to... Um, have a known touch responsive protein, um, look at the promoter of that and um, connect that also to something else that glows, luciferase in this, in this case, and see if they got expression of this known touch induced protein, which mm -hmm. should say that their touch is not only having an effect on the bolting, which is a known thing, it's also having effect on the calcium signals, it's making these calcium um, waves, and it's also um, causing the expression of a known touch um, responsive protein. How did they? How much did they touch it? Yeah, so they did three touch treatments daily, and they tried so um, then different amounts of touch: uh, 10 touches per touch treatment, 20, 40, 60, and 80. Um, and do they say how hard they touch? Yeah. So this is something else. So um, in the end, they decided to do this um, 40 uh, touches per three touch treatments daily that was what they came up as the, the optimal amounts of touch so 120 touches per day yeah but in in different <laughs> three different distinct you know breakfast lunch and dinner yeah. touching of these poor plants um because <laughs> they got like a significant change from 10 to 40 and then they didn't really get any increase when you went from 40 to 60 or 80 um they did look at the touch strength um they said it was like no nah, it was measured it was like something like 84 plus or minus 80 milligrams. Um, and this was basically then 
they had to have a student touch something which is like pressure sensitive um yeah. and see how it was like a scale probably if you look at the yeah if you look at the diagram in the paper it's there's a lot of variation is at 84 plus or minus 80 which is like the the standard deviation or the the error is like as much as the touch so i think that kind of i mean if you've got a person manually touching you've got a lot of variation and I, I kind of actually wonder if this is a reviewer question where like a reviewer kind of said hey but how hard did you touch them and did this yeah. vary a lot and i think i mean it seems something would be very difficult to, yeah. to actually regulate, but so right? So it's pretty much just like tapped it 40 times. Or did they like stroke it? Did no, they, 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 they touched it. Um, and that's actually one of the great things about this article and one of the reasons I chose it. So um, if you go online, um, you can actually see videos of this person <laughs> touching it. So he's got like a jar on top of um, what looks like a scale, but I think it's actually the sensitivity thing. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, and he's basically poking a, a cotton ball, a cotton... I as well. a tip yeah exactly onto yeah. this plant um, and randomly touching all the different leaves um okay of the plant so it's also not just one leaf it's supposed to be different leaves um and kind of just doing this over and over again to get this touch response and then yeah he has a tray in front of himself with what this is uh 18 plants and so if you imagine like oh more than that there's like four plants per each of those different pots so it's really oh, yeah. yeah he's just like and going if he's for hitting it. each plant 40 times it's it seems like a lot of work. And then um, <laughs> another really cool video on the website is that the second that he finishes um, touching the plant, some other guy like comes and just like pours liquid nitrogen over the plant so that they can like get the immediate responses of these <laughs> um, touches. So it's, it's quite a nice paper to look at at least. Um, and again, that was one of the reasons I chose it as a journal club presentation. Of course, we can't make sure this on the podcast, but check it online. And, and we, we will link to the paper and then also with the paper you will find the links to the videos in the show notes below this episode so you can find everything there that we mentioned here. Yeah, so and then just like uh, as an aside, I mentioned already the cotton bud and I think I mentioned that they also did some touching with rubber gloved hands. But something they also did was touching with hair, which is... <laughs> okay. So here they have um, the plant in a tray and if you can imagine above a... Um, kind of hair falling down I imagine it's connected to a person still but it's just like sweeping like gently brushing over the plants and going backwards and forward in this like automated mechanized um motion which <laughs> looks kind of horrific but they were just trying to see um how different effects worked so um yeah it's also one of the things you need to know if it's if it's a specific thing so maybe your cotton bud is having an effect or if it's actually like generally a touch thing so then different types of touch is helpful and i think if i remember rightly they also used winds so i'm assuming somebody's mm -hmm. like blowing on the plants but um there might be better <laughs> ways to do that than just blowing on the plant okay um and so they did this this whole touching um but did they that for several days before they froze them or was it like one day of the touch procedure and then immediately freeze it and measure the the response because you said like they did the liquid nitrogen freezing. Was it just like one part, just like one of the data points that they took and others they did it for longer? I cannot remember, to be honest. Okay, well then. Crap. <laughs> um, no, never mind. I never read the materials and methods that closely unless I want to try and repeat something. Sorry, guys. No, um, no. Okay, so the main, the main point of the um, paper, the, the main aim of the project is to see which proteins were phosphorylated after touch. So they basically touched a whole lot of plants and as a control, they didn't touch a whole lot of plants. 
and then they looked at the phosphoproteomics. So they measured um, proteins which were phosphorylated. And to do this, it's a little bit tricky. They just used a method where you label the different proteins um, radioactively. It's a method called um, cilia, which is stable isotope labeling in Arabidopsis which I think is very species specific to add the, yes. the in Arabidopsis at the end of that um, is an acronym. So no other researchers you can use it You mustn't use it, it in tobacco. We work yeah. mainly with tobacco, so I'm a little bit like offended for the tobacco users right now. Um, but they use this and they basically, um, you can label with um, these stable isotopes and it gives a different weight to your proteins, mm. um, basically. So they're measured on the mass spec um, and it basically allows you to identify proteins so what you do is you label the touched ones for example and then you don't label the untouched ones and then you mix them together and then you you run them on this mass spec you measure the phosphoproteins and then based on how heavy the proteins are you can tell which ones are labeled they're heavier and which ones haven't been labeled so they're lighter and that allows you to see which ones belong to the non-touched ones and which ones belong to the touched one mm. and they did this reciprocally which means that in one experiment they labeled the touched proteins and they didn't label the control proteins and the other way around they they labeled the control and this just means that you make sure you don't have a bias from the labeling that's also um, playing yeah. in so it's, it's a nice way to do science yeah, so the results of this is kind of the main part of the study, but I'm actually going to skip over a little bit. So they um, managed to find quite some proteins which were induced by touch. They also saw some proteins which were, uh, by, by induced, sorry, I mean they were phosphorylated under touch. Um, and they also saw some which were dephosphorylated or which were enriched in the control. One of these was actually a photosynthesis protein, which maybe I care about because I like photosynthesis, but... um. It wasn't super clear why that would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it was just a random thing, but it was um, significantly increasing the control. And they also um, kind of came up with some some different yeah rules for the things that might be um, phosphorylated under touch. So it's it's pattern finding basically where mm -hmm. they're they're trying to see if they can like look at all of the stuff that they found that was phosphorylated under touch and say okay, all of these have this same feature on the protein or have this same kind of, it can either be a, a physical feature of the protein or it can be like a, um, that the protein has a function and they try to categorize it into different groups so we can understand more about what happens when we touch plants. Um, and they found uh, a couple of different groups of things. So they found some kinases, um, some things related to your normal calcium signaling, um, and then they also found again the second group, which I already mentioned, which is stuff related to the the growth of the cell. So um, yeah, like uh, cytoskeleton things like this, um, mm. which which um, are involved in the the shape and the size and, and the rigidity of the cell. So they also found this kind of group of things. Um, then, in order to kind of confirm that study, this is a really nice way to do science. So first, you do a kind of large scale. Um, analysis of a certain process and then you look more specifically at one example and they found um, a couple of proteins which had very large fold increases and they decided to focus on one which they've called TREP H1 um, and this is basically a protein which hasn't really been described before so it seems to have some conservation not only in plants so they found it in Arabidopsis also in tobacco and in rice but there also seems to be something similar in like bats so also mm -hmm. in mammals um, but apart from that, there's there's very little known about it. Um, nonetheless, in their study that they found, it had a really large uh, fold increase. So it folded, it was phosphorylated um, 
8.3 times more when the plants were touched mm-hmm. than when they weren't touched. Um, and so they decided to like have a look into what this um, could possibly be. Okay, so this is sort of one of the, the, the proteins that showed the strongest response out of the whole batch that they looked at. Mm. Um, uh, like, yeah, I, I mean, I know from, from, from some studies that I did, you, you get so much data that just by chance there's something in there um, that's not supposed to be in there. That's not uh, like pr- true. It doesn't have, is actually um, biologically relevant to your question. And with this second experiment that they did, they sort of try to rule this out, right? They try to find the ones that are, um, that really are involved in the process and don't just like for technical reasons end up in the data set. Yeah. And this is um, one of the good things about their data set is that they already found within their touch responsive phosphorylated protein data that they already found some known players so this is kind of a nice like um reassurance that what they're looking at might actually be yeah. be true if you already found something so they, they found also um uh i think mkk1 is maybe the name of it i can yeah anyway so this is like a known player um but then they also i mean what's really furthering science is to then look at the the unknown things and this trep h1 that they defined basically nothing is known about it they could um use the protein structure which is only predicted based on the amino acid sequence which is again mm. coming from the, the dna um they could predict that it might have a kind of sickle like shape mm-hmm. Um, they said it was a bit of a weird one because it didn't have a transmembrane domain and many of the things involved in these touch signals have this transmembrane domain which means they can cross through a membrane mm-hmm. and that's very important because they're getting touch signals from the outside and they have to bring it into the cell so one of the main categories of um, touch related proteins if it's not one of these signaling kind of related um, things is to like link through the the protein and apart from that they also found that it was apart from touching the the um, protein itself was relatively constitutively um, expressed during the the life cycle of the plant so there was no clue that it was only expressed under certain um, conditions that actually might be the the rna not the protein to be honest yeah okay it's just as an explanation that just means that some some uh, things are only made at a specific time during a plant's life which makes sense for example the, the all the genes involved in fruiting so for, for in a tomato all the genes involved in growing the fruit making it red having the transition from a green tomato to a red tomato all of these have very specific timings that when they have to be active and outside of these timings they should not be active and, and th- that can be like a really nice clue for us about what their function is so yeah um Luckily for us at this stage, there's been a lot of these really large scale scale studies where people have, for example, harvested only the flowers of Arabidopsis. And then they have um, looked at all of the genes, even though most of them, we don't know what their function are. And they say, these 20 genes are really highly upregulated in the flowers. And then somebody else has looked at all the leaves and they say, well, it's not upregulated in the leaves. And then you might be able to say, hmm, maybe this this protein or whatever it is has a role in floral development, something like this. But in contrast, the protein here in the study um, has no timing that has, has been described so far. And that might be um, unsurprising because I think when they're looking at this um, constitutive expression, they're looking at RNA levels. The RNA then has to make the protein and the link between the amount of RNA and the amount of protein is not always linear. And in fact, what we're looking at here is in the modification of the protein. So yeah. um, I, it's I, sort of like two steps removed from yeah, the yeah. And measurement. This, this phosphorylation of this protein um, could in fact be the main regulation. And, and this is one of the things with like all complex organisms. There's so many different levels at which you can 
like modulate or control how much of a certain thing is expressed and even once it's expressed how active it is or how likely it is to like meet up with other guys that it needs to work with and there's there's just a whole lot of different things involved so this guy is phosphorylated it's the protein itself is modified under touch um but anyway they did manage to um confirm that there was a link between touching and this protein so they produced knockout mutants of um this trep1 protein yeah so the the it's a very standard approach that if you find something that you're interested in um, you sort of break it and then see the response of it. Uh, this is then called a knockout. You can do it in many different ways, but essentially um, you end up with a plant that doesn't make this protein or a functional version of this protein. And then you can look at uh, what's going on in the plant. And I guess they touched it again and looked at how does it respond to touch if this one protein is missing, but the rest of the entire system is still there. Exactly. So... Um when you look at the wild type um, of the the plant, you have the touch plants, and you see that the bolting is is later than in the untouched plants, which we already discussed. But when you have the knockout of this trip or H one, I'm not really sure how to say that T R E P H one, um, there is less of a delay in bolting. So there's still a little bit of a delay, but um, the plants bolt almost as if they haven't been touched. So. This is a pretty good clue that without this protein, there's something missing in that communication that tells the plant, hey, you're being attacked, you're being touched too much, wait before you flower. And I mean, putting out flowers is a huge investment for the plant. And if that goes wrong, you've basically screwed up your chance to reproduce and you're done. Like you're, as an organism, you're dead. Um, So they made these knockout mutants. They did all these touch tests, but they also did some... um, more complicated stuff perhaps where they um, looked Sorry. within these um, TREP H1 plants to see if they could find any other changes in transcript levels which might be related to this protein um, and I'm not going to go into that but they found some promising um, candidates which seem to fit in what, with what's already known in the literature. Mm-hmm. So this would be then sort of the connection point for further studies and now in these mutants they can look at other stuff that may, might be changing in response. Sometimes uh, organisms or, or, or plants try to um, uh, compensate for the loss of a protein. And that would be an interesting way to see sort of the, the backup pathways that might be triggered then and, and study those that are usually harder to find because they're hidden by the main pathway um, that was then uh, destroyed and in this knockout. Yeah, I think the pathway is really the, cl- the, the key word that you've used there because often you're not just looking for a protein that's involved in the response, but you also then want to find where on that huge response it's, it's involved. So we discussed already that like with touching, there's these short-term responses which involve like calcium signaling, but then there's slower responses and you need to know in which point of this like long, um, like I don't even know how, like a signaling pathway, but what's what's a better way to say that? It's like... It's like a cascade of things that, yeah, that work maybe nice. depend on each other or like in a in a complicated machine. I mean, it's a little bit of an overused example, but if you have like an assembly uh, in, a, in a factory, uh, an assembly, assembly line. Assembly line, assembly line is, is nice. Yeah, where you like the, you can't do step nine bef- uh, before you have done the other steps before. Um, and this is often how these pathways work. So one after the other does something. It could be a modification. It could be like a, a metabol- metabolite that's change um, if you imagine like the what you maybe remember from biology class breakdown of sugars in in a in a organism uh, it's like a stepwise process every step is done by a specific player one protein or several proteins or other 
um, molecules. And so they all cascade down to um, an observ observable result, like the result, uh, delay in bolting. Okay, and uh, that's um, something that the authors tested really briefly was to look at, I already mentioned that when you touch, you get this calcium signal and you can measure the, this calcium signal by looking at this glowing of this calcium dependent um, fluorescent mm. protein, which is aquarin. And in their mutant, where they had knocked out their, their protein, they found that there was no change in this mm -hmm. calcium signal. And this makes complete sense because like changes in phosphorylation of a protein is generally considered to be downstream of the calcium signals because calcium signals happen just much more rapidly. So I, they did this quick um, test, which kind of showed them where in the process um, their protein was. Uh, but what they got was just, um, yeah, kind of what we expect. Okay, so um, they then also complemented the proteins. Um, so this is basically when you first knock out something and then you put it back in. Um. Yeah, the idea is to show that um, your knockout did not have any sort of secondary effects because often when you do the knockout, um, you introduce, for example, a very large piece of DNA that you put into the gene where you have your knockout. And this large piece of DNA could have secondary effects. It could change the behavior of genes around it. And to make sure that what you actually observe is not because the neighbor gene is destroyed, you put it you put your original gene back in and see if you can restore sort of the wild type level and that means you have a direct link between the existence of a certain protein in a in a plant or in, uh, in the phenotype and this is extremely important um with our traditional studies so with um, arabidopsis our model plant we actually have commercially available knockouts so this is something where you can look up your gene of interest and you can buy something which has already broken your gene um, and they're a great resource and it's really, I mean, changed the face of, yeah. of plant. Yeah, like, so much research would not be possible with, uh, without this resource. But the caveat to this is that um, these knockouts have happened by inserting a bigger fragment of DNA, as your arm just mentioned. And most of the plant lines that you can buy which have um, your knockout may also have this, this DMA fragment somewhere else. So on average, these, these lines, which are like sulk lines, but we also have like gabby cat lines or... Um, just different companies who have made these commercially available um, knockouts. On average, they have more than one tDNA insertion, which means that more than one gene might be knocked out. So it's really important to do these complementations um, to check that everything's kind of... Yeah, that what you see is actually linked to your protein. That's something that just random, like by, by chance also happens in your experiment, but you are not looking at it. Um, and so you draw the, the wrong conclusions. So this is very good practice. And I think it's a nice, the, the paper is a nice uh, demonstration of, of scientific approaches for these kind of questions, right? L looking at it a little bit from a meta perspective, like they did a very large scale search came up with a list of things that could be relevant to, to their question and then they picked out one that they then looked uh, further and they knocked it out and they complemented it and therefore they are very confident that what they see is actually a result of this protein. And this actually brings me back to the original reason why um, touch proteins were discovered and it was that somebody was trying to spray plants with hormones. So I think they were looking at gibberellic acid and um, maybe jasmonic acid, um, just known hormones that are supposed to induce response. And they're spraying them um, with these hormones and they're getting a response. 
things like delayed bolting for example and it was only like when they tried doing the controls where they sprayed just with water that they realized that the response with the water control was exactly the same as the hormones and that led them to say um hey it's not the hormones it's the fact that you're spraying these poor plants so (laughs) i think that's a nice way to finish up to kind of discuss the origins of touch proteins but also to kind of express how important it is to have the right control so that you don't think you see something when you don't yeah, especially as so much, so many experiments rely on some physical application of something. I mean, there's some that are very gentle that use evaporated uh, agents like ethanol or something that's just in the air. But there's many where you have like leaf infiltration or other things where you really put pressure and physical force on, on the plant itself. And then you observe and something. Yeah, definitely as a scientist. I mean, if I'm growing my wild type next to a, a new fascinating mutant that I'm looking for, I'm definitely, I'm more likely to pick up and look at that mutant. And you have to be aware that you put it near your face or you just by picking it up, you might already be causing some sort of effect. So I think this is a really important thing where whatever you do to your mutant, if you're doing mutant studies, do it to the wild type. So sure, pick up and look at your mutant. It's absolutely important, but also like pick up and like breathe on your wild type as well. Just (laughs) you're not getting... No to the boring plan. Okay, wild type. (laughs) (laughs) It's much more this like, like seriously, I'm I'm looking at wild type again. (laughs) Yep. Alrighty. Cool. cool. That's like. So just just to go back to the title of this um, paper, this was in um, PNAS, so Proceeding of the Natural Academy of Science, I think, yeah. or the American Academy of Science. Oh, I should really know this one. I think it's the National Academy of Science. National, yeah. Um, in October 2018, um, and it was by Wang et al. called Quantitative and Functional Post-Translational, Post-Translational Modification Proteomics reveals that TREP H1 plays a role in plant touch-delayed bolting. So look that one up if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that. There were so many interesting things in there that I also didn't know. Alrighty, I think we should go on with, with journal number two. Exactly. So the journal, uh, the, the article I wrote today is called The High Efficiency Generation of Fertile Transplastomic Arabidopsis Plants from Ruf et al. from the lab of Ralf Bock of, of the MPI in Potsdam. Which sounds familiar. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) so this title already um i mean it's pretty clear that the title holds a lot of information because that's the point of a title of a scientific journal um but the keyword here is fertile which we will look at later on so tegan did you ever transform a chloroplast i mean yes like not not technically me i would say like with a very large amount of support from yeah our transformation team at work and and why did you do that um, my boss was paying me money. No, I mean, so in best reason. In my project, I was interested in in trying to overexpress, or actually not overexpress, like upregulate the expression of um, a natural chloroplast protein. So this is something where the chloroplast actually has its own genome, and the genome encodes certain proteins, and most of them are relative relevant for um, photosynthesis. So I was trying to see if we could upregulate a photosynthetic or photosynthesis related protein. Um, mm-hmm. And to do that, we needed to change the elements that are upstream of that protein. So, um, or, I mean, the gene is encoded and also has a promoter which says how much the gene should be expressed. Um, and I tried to change how much the gene was expressed and I had to transform the chloroplast to do this. Yeah, and that brings me already, like you already said it, the chloroplast has its own genome, which is a very important thing to know when looking at this paper, that um, often 
traditionally you would think uh, an organism has one genome you read the, the news the nucleus is the brain of the plant <laughs> exactly yes. you read the papers uh, that, or in the newspapers or maybe you remember uh, when they deciphered the human genome they said like the human genome is now uh, fully understood um, and we know the sequences of it nobody said that ever fully understood was never yeah, maybe not fully understood but they know they know all of the letters and by now they know what many of these letters mean um, or many of these combinations of letters but uh, <laughs> they <laughs> the, 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 the important thing here is that a cell doesn't have just one genome there is the nuclear genome at least in eukaryotes so in every organism that has a, a nucleus a cell core um I mean, prokaryotes also have like the, the genome they also have the dna yes but they they have more that they only have one genome then um although you could say that i mean that goes a little bit too deep but you could argue that some of the the plasmids are sort of not the part of the genome in a bacterium for example that they are sort of extra genomic DNA in the cell. But anyway, that goes too far. What I want to say is that uh, all organisms that have a nucleus and mitochondria have already two genomes. So and us. So us. Uh, all and fruit bats. And fruit bats and, and yeast. Yeah, yeast. Um, kangaroos, just to bring it back to Australia, I guess. <laughs> <That's> my agenda. <laughs> kangaroos uh, have two genomes, you guys. A nuclear genome and a mitochondrial genome breaking news <laughs> and plants the most exciting uh, group of organisms has even three genomes they have, <laughs> they have the nuclear <laughs> genome the mitochondrial genome so the, and then they have a chloroplast genome so these uh, a genome is a set of uh, genetic information that is inherited sp- uh, differently from the other genomes so the genetic information encoded in the chloroplast is uh, inherited in a different pattern in a different way than the genome in the nucleus um, for example uh, in in plants um, or in most plants or many plants i think the um, chloroplast in, is inherited maternally that means the egg cell of the the mother plant holds the chloroplast and the uh, pollen cell from the f- uh, male plant doesn't have a chloroplast so the genetic information of the chloroplast always comes from the mother line while the genetic information in nucleus is a mixture of both mo- uh, mother and father lines yeah I mean, there's definitely that there are some exceptions where you see biparental inheritance of um, the cytoplasmic DNA, which includes the mitochondria and the chloroplast. But for a large amount of plants, it's pretty much just coming through the mother. Exactly, and that's why um, I'm um, to to start this. The changing of genetic information has been possible for a while now, um, but most of the time it's just the genetic information in the nucleus. So there's many different methods how you can change the uh, nuclear DNA. Um, in plants, you do that, for example, with agrobacterium, or you can, um, yeah. I mean, like, the argument is like, why? So, yeah, we can we can already change the nucleus. But yeah. nucleus contains, like, most of the genes, right? So, yeah. what's... Still, some of the genes are very specific to the organelle or the like, the place where they come from. So the the chloroplast DNA has some very specific functions that is not covered by anything in the nucleus. Can you give an example? Um, a lot of photosynthetic um, genes are encoded in the chloroplast because photosynthesis happens in the chloroplast. So um, these parts cannot be covered or taken over by the n- nuclear genome. Some some things are, but some crucial things can't be um, 
encoded in the nuclear genome. Uh, the, the specifics of this are a little bit more complicated, but it has something to do with the uh, import of the gene products into the chloroplast, for example, that is sometimes really hard. Uh, and so these genes have to stay in a chloroplast genome and can't easily be mixed into the nuclear genome. And for researchers, it's very important to manipulate these genomes. As I said already, like, the nuclear genome can be manipulated quite easily. Um, and there's a few organisms that way can do that also for other uh, organelles. So, for example, you said already that the tobacco is something we can reuse for for reason. I didn't say that, but you knew that. Yeah. No, you, um, you said that you, <laughs> use, you like tobacco. Yeah. So, in our lab, we modify the chloroplast genome of tobacco or the plastid genome of tobacco um, simply because up until this beautiful paper from Yoram, it's not been that easy to do it in Arabidopsis. The, the, yeah, from Yoram. Sorry, from Ruf et al., which Yoram is now talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Tobacco has up until now been the kind of model species for chloroplast manipulation. But yeah. you can also do it in other species. So yeah. yeah, there's a few species now where it works, but it's uh, sort of the, the set where you can do standard nuclear transformation. Transformation is always the introduction of foreign DNA into your nuclear genome. This is a very large set where you can do that. For the chloroplast, it's a very small set. There's only... Um, uh, tobacco is one of the classic ones. Um, I actually had a list here um, where it's... Tomato. Yeah, tomato, like a solanaceous species. That's tomato and related things. Yeah, so they're all related to tobacco as well. So it's kind of a cheat. It's like in the big the big family. So Then one staple crop, uh, lettuce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in poplar, uh, which is quite interesting. It's one of the few tree species that is actually... Uh, heavily researched because it has many advantages in the manipulation of it. So glad I don't work with trees. It's just like they, they take a long time to grow. I have the like, yes. I, I mean, I've heard that trees sometimes grow more slowly than our beautiful model. Yeah, plants. definitely. Like doing crosses and multiple generations. Uh, Not so possible. Yeah, you have to like, have your family working on it. It's like a family research. Then, <laughs> son, you have inherited my transformed <laughs> poplar. You will wait until it flowers in one hundred years' time. I'm making this number up. I have no idea how long it takes for poplar to flower. Okay. Um, yeah. One thing I think like you should explain, why would we care about manipulating the chloroplast genome? So as I already said, like most of the genes are in the nucleus. Okay, there's a few very important genes in the chloroplast. These are some genes encoding core proteins which are involved in photosynthesis. So yep. is it just for photosynthesis or can you like elaborate on... No, there's, um, it has other properties as well. Um, so the, the chloroplast is very dense in, in protein and uh, has a very high... Um, uh, activity in gene expression and that's why it's often used as a platform for biotechnology so if you can manage to introduce a pathway into the um, the chloroplast then you have a very favorable environment to make whatever your product is to to make a lot of it because it constantly is very active um, that's one reason why people are interested in it from a biotechnology standpoint and the other thing is that what i touched already on before the inheritance of it is uh, in many species very limited to the mother plant so if you imagine you would uh, transform uh, the chloroplast of tobacco and you would put it on a field there would be no way that the transformation in the, the change in the chloroplast could spread through the pollen, for example, to different fields. So in terms of biocontainment, it's also um, something that uh, uh, many people research 
uh, or are interested in having this this uh, ability to transform the chloroplast. So then your three main reasons would be, one, you can manipulate certain genes involved in photosynthesis, which just don't exist in the nucleus. Two, you can get huge amounts of expression of proteins, which can be like foreign proteins also. Um, uh, and also there's not, there's not silencing yeah. happening so often. So sometimes the nuclear genome kind of notices that you've changed it and it uh, activates these kind of defense mechanisms and, and just silences the gene that you're trying to um, express. And then the third thing is, is biocontainment. And that's kind of the, the three big like pluses of chloroplast transformation, I would say. Yeah. Did we forget something? Um, that's the ones we like. That's what we're going to Yeah, that's, that's the ones I care about. No, that's, that's the ones I, I remember. Uh, apart from, I, I think the, the biggest advantage really in this, that's also why this paper to me was very important, is um, for research, the tools that you have available are really defining for what you can research, what you can look into. And... This okay. paper produced a new tool, and that's why it's really cool to have like the, chlor the chloroplast being able to be transformed. Otherwise, it's just one of the parts in the eh, cell. Eh, eh. So, I mean, this is this is the next point: is like the chloroplast already can be transformed in tobacco. So, can you explain like why this is such a new like why is this such a special tool? Like, if I can already do all of this work in tobacco, why should I care that I can now do it in Arabidopsis? Um, the the answer is that many of the uh, or, like. Tobacco and Arabidopsis are clearly different, right? So, I mean, <laughs> these are two different species, and there are some questions that you can't answer in tobacco for for once. Do you think somebody tried to smoke Arabidopsis ever? Probably some. Somebody's tried. Somebody's tried yeah. everything. Like after touching all of them, <laughs> you start getting creative and you start oh rolling God. them up. <laughs> we apologize to the authors of the previous paper that we <laughs> we yeah. Um, and then uh, tobacco has some difficulties, some challenges when it comes to its nuclear genome. Um, it's allotetraploid, which is a complicated word. That means it holds the genomes of two or originator species that have been crossed together. And therefore, um, every gene exists in four copies that are slightly different from each other, but it's really hard to do nuclear work in uh, tobacco. That's why a lot of that, that, that stuff happens in Arabidopsis. And yeah, so just to go back, like most of like our, our basic species just have basically two copies of um, yeah. the genome um, and they're they're highly similar to each other and tobacco has four because two came from the maternal progenitor so the ultimate mother and two came from the father and not only is there extra copies which makes everything harder but they're also different these two copies yeah and so in the end, when you choose your organism that you want to work with, you always have to select, uh, like, you can do different methods on different of these organisms. And you have to choose which, based on this, this, the things you want to do, you have to look which organism has all of these methods available. And so far, bef just before this paper here was published, um, you could not do chloroplast transformation in Arabidopsis, but you could very easily work with genetic, uh, with a nuclear uh, genetic resources while in tobacco you could easily transform the chloroplast but it was really hard to work with anything related to the nucleus and i think we've so we've already mentioned um it, when we we're talking about my journal club that arabidopsis already has a lot of these publicly available resources so you can actually buy commercially some of these um knockouts some of these mutants um from the nuclear genome for arabidopsis um can you kind of discuss a bit why, like other reasons why Arabidopsis might be a better model species than tobacco? Because obviously I'm team tobacco, but like, <laughs> can you say what's good about Arabidopsis? I, I quite like Arabidopsis because it's, um, first of all, it's much sm 
smaller and therefore easier to handle. Um, tobacco can grow up to two meters in, in height. So if you imagine you have a full grown tobacco plant and you want to move it around, this is already annoying. And it's so you, very sticky. So whenever you touch yeah. it, you get this like weird, like sappy crap all over your hands. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, super sticky. Um, the leaves are quite big. I mean, it's 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 good if you need a lot of leaf material. But if you want to, for example, screen lots of different plants, or you have like a little uh, uh, a small change that you want to test, or for example, many different conditions. It's much easier to do that in Arabidopsis because you can more easily scale any experiment Okay, there. so Arabidopsis is smaller in size. What else? It grows much faster. Um, the generation time is um, like up to three months, I think. You can go from generation to generation if you're quick about it. Whereas something like tobacco is more like six months and something like wheat, um, so a crop is even yeah. longer, so eight months or something. Yeah, exactly. So if you think in the most like useful time period or like description of time is one PhD project which is three years <laughs> you can do so much more uh, so many more generations Yaram, with Arabidopsis Yaram how long did it take you to do your PhD is, is three years the standard PhD time Yes, yes, but yes. I'm I'm very special, so I don't I don't adhere to standards. <laughs> okay, so it has it's it's small size. Arabidopsis is um it has a very short generational time. What else? The genome is fairly small, so it's very it's uh, much easier to have to. I don't want to say that you can understand the entire genome, but there's it's easier than bigger things. Exactly. And you already mentioned that it doesn't have these two different progenitors. And we said tobacco is a problem because it has it's allotetrapoid. It has a mother and a father kind of progenitor, which gives us these mixed um, genomes. And that's actually quite a common feature of most of our crop, not most of, but many of our crop plants. Um, So uh, wheat and things like this, they have multiple, sometimes even like three. So then you have six times the genome instead of just two times the genome. Exactly. And that's why, uh, for example, uh, like Arabidopsis has been sequenced the, the entire genome has been sequenced for many years now um, and for wheat it was, it was the first plant genome to be sequenced right so back yeah. in 2000 I think like yeah. at the same kind of time as the, the human genome project we got Arabidopsis which is yeah. a win for plant scientists and this huge head start re- uh, resulted in many resources being awa- available now we have very good annotation of the genome it doesn't mean that we understand everything that's in this genome but we understand it much better than for many other organisms and for example, for wheat, um, this was only uh, fully sequenced uh, and partially annotated uh, in 2018. Ooh. So you see there's like an 18-year head start for Arabidopsis in that domain. And even before that, I think it was back in the 50s even that the first guy was like, hey, hey, let's make Arabidopsis the main model for the reasons we've just listed. So basically, for the last 70 years, people have been working very largely in the Arabidopsis. If they work on plants, they pre- they know what Arabidopsis is, but a lot of them have worked with Arabidopsis. So yeah. the analogy that I often hear is the idea of a puzzle where if you have a puzzle and 90% of it was already finished, it's very easy to put the, the remaining pieces in. Of course, it's like plant science. We don't know 90%. We know like less than 9%, I would say. Um, whereas with all of these other species, the puzzle is just like completely lacking. It's like an 8 billion piece puzzle and we have yeah. like five pieces so far. Yeah, and we don't have any of the corner pieces that make it easy to start and all of this stuff. <laughs> We're really milking this analogy for all it's worth. There's no corner pieces, you guys. It's like super tricky to work with. There's no corner pieces. Yeah. But um, yeah, and that's why this this paper here um, is really interesting because it opens up this this tool, this uh, this um, lab organism that we use now for, for a very long time, it suddenly opens up an entire part of its uh, genetic information to manipulation. And 
that that is really exciting because that offers so many more approaches to understand gene functions, relationships of uh, of, of genes between a nuclear genome and a plastid genome. Or uh, the plastid is here the, um, uh, means the same as chloroplast. So, uh, do you want to <laughs> elaborate what the difference between a plastid and a chloroplast is for like the? Um, the plastid is a <laughs> no. The chloroplast is a type of plastid. So plastid is yes. a general term, but there are different types of plastid. So chloroplast is the green plastid, the one that um, does photosynthesis. But there are also like leucoplast and amyloplast. Chromoplast is what gives color. So chromo, you know, color. So for flowers and for for carrots and tomatoes and things like that. Um, so it's just a family. Plastid is kind of the the, the wider term. Yeah. The thing is, when we talk about genes, I mean all of these different types of plastids also have the plastid genome, um, even if they're not chloroplast. So there's a bit of a mix up um, in the way we speak. Normally, we say the chloroplast genome, but actually, we often really mean the plastid genome. And yeah. I care about this because I work with non-green plastids, which are called tyroplasts. So that's why <laughs> I want to like hammer that home. And if you want to know more about why the plastid or the chloroplast looks like it does today, look at our first blog post Whoa. that we have on our website. <laughs> Yoram is like super good at the promotion. Like, hey guys, hey, hey guys, 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 check, yeah, out, our, check we, out our blog. Because that would go too far now to go into the story of the endosymbiotic event. But we wrote about this on the blog. So there you can find more information. Uh, and eventually I will also write about different types of plastids because I care deeply about different types of plastids. But for now, yeah. that's on the blog at least. Exactly. And for now, we want to just look at the, or just understand the general idea several genomes in a cell and right now oh i want to go to that so it's several genomes is actually also one of the keys because like generally in a cell you have like a nuclear genome which might have like this two ends this two copies of of the genome in a rabidopsis yeah. four in tobacco as we said but chloroplasts are cool because within a single cell you can have hundreds of chloroplasts um and each of them has to have at least one copy of the chloroplast genome. This is not quite the same for mitochondria. Mitochondria are difficult creatures, but chloroplasts have at least one copy of the chloroplast genome and usually they have up until like 10 or, or more copies. So for every one copy of the nuclear genome in a cell, you can have like tens of thousands of copies of the chloroplast genome. And this is one of the reasons why transforming this genome can be so useful because you get a lot of bang for your buck you transform the genome and you have thousands of genomes in the cell all like doing your bidding and making whatever you want to make yeah. um but this also uh, offers some of the challenges and this is what i want to talk about now why was it so hard to do the plaster transformation in arabidopsis why could we do it in tobacco so so easily so far and why couldn't we do it in arabidopsis and um what the there's a couple of things that you need for a successful transformation. You first of all need to uh, have a DNA sequence that fits to your target gene. Um, this is the, the specifics are very complicated, but there's uh, some things that are already uh, have have been proven over time to work very well to be integrated into the genome because you can't just put any DNA in there because that most likely will not sort of stick and catch on and, and stay in there. Um, in the plastid, it's related to the homologous recombination so that you have to have a certain sequence that is met in the plastid so you can actually integrate it. So homologous recombination, it's a bit of a tricky idea to understand, um, but it's basically the idea that um, the chloroplast genome will see a, a section of letters of your, your genomic code and it can switch things out if they're the same. So the idea is if you have a sentence which says, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog, 
if the chloroplast sees that, it kind of reads the start and the end and it kind of like forgets about the jumped over the. So I can say the quick brown fox jumped over the fish, swam to sea and the lazy dogs. And the chloroplast genome will kind of read that as being the same as the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. And if you give it your new sentence, it just kind of like swaps out the old sentence with the new sentence without kind of realizing what's in the middle if the end bits are right. And that's that's homologous yeah. recombination. And this is something that has been studied a lot in, in the past. And so getting a sequence that has a high probability of actually sticking to your genome and staying inside, um, that has sort of been solved. And it was also the case for Arabidopsis. So also in this paper, they didn't figure out a new way uh, of uh, designing that stretch of DNA that they want to integrate. It's something so, that could very easily be done also in tobacco. So the homologous recombination in Arabidopsis and tobacco are basically the same, as far yeah. as we can tell. The other part is the delivery of the DNA. So maybe you, you I mean, you, you've done some uh, chloroplast transformation, or at least people helped you do it. Uh, so how did you deliver the DNA? Yeah, so we used um, gold particles. So basically you get a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of gold worth absolutely nothing. And um, you stick it uh, the DNA onto this gold. And actually, I think um, previously, at least, we've used these like kind of sperm-based um, proteins, like which are very sticky, um, to stick the, the DNA you want onto the gold particles. And then you use basically a gun and you shoot that gold into um, the leaf. So the idea is that the the gold will penetrate through the the epidermal cells of the leaf, the outside of the leaf. It'll go into the cell of the leaf and it will also go into the chloroplast of the leaf. And then you basically have this gold guy who's like got DNA, which is now near yeah. the DNA of your aplastid. Exactly. And then it sort of dissolves from this particle and ends up in your cell and is accessible to whatever cellular processes then take over and, for example, integrate it into the genome. And also that is something that has been done time and time again and uh, delivering DNA into uh, into Arabidopsis with these gold particles uh, has been done a lot uh, for, for nuclear transformation. So this is called biolistic transformation, this process. So you're saying that already the homologous recombination, the design of um, the, the, the DNA to get it in there is the same as tobacco and the biolistic transformation, this like shooting with gold particles is the same as tobacco. Exactly. So That's what's new? Um, what is new is uh, the the last part that you really need when you whenever you do this type of experiment is you have to have a regeneration protocol, and this sounds very fancy, like from a sci-fi movie. Um, you have to activate the regeneration protocol, but what it means is that you have your uh, a type of cell. Often in to in tobacco, you use leaf cells. So you cut up the leaf, put it in a plate, you shoot your particles at it. And then from all of these uh, leaf particles, you want to get new plants. Right now you only have uh, transformed cells, individual cells. And to do that, you do a process called regeneration. You put your leaf piece on a specific type of medium and then uh, plant growth hormones um, kick in and trigger a response there. And I mean, our listeners might already be familiar with this if they've done any plant work at home where you take a cutting basically from a plant and then you stick that um, plant sometimes in hormone powder, which is very similar to what you do in the lab, um, and then in water. And eventually from like a stem and a leaf, you get an entire plant growing. And this is something that we do, but on a, on a smaller scale in the lab, kind of like with, with smaller leaf yep. pieces and with more complicated hormones, I would say. Yeah. And 
this is very specific to different species. So if you know how to do it in tobacco, it doesn't mean that you know how to do it in Arabidopsis or poplar or uh, so any other species. When you say specific, you mean the ability for the plant to grow from that? From that specific composition of hormones and nutrients and light conditions and so on. So this is what we call in the lab the a protocol. So like a recipe for cooking, um, you have to have very uh, you mix a certain reagents together and you have very specific conditions uh, in in terms of time and light intensity and temperature that you uh, incubate your uh, plants with to regenerate them and what happens then is that a single cell then divides and forms a shoot and from this a shoot material then you can um, so slowly push it to become a whole plant that has roots and leaves and eventually forms flowers and sets seeds and this procedure is very well understood uh, in tobacco um, but it was really hard to do that in Arabidopsis. So it's again similar to the cutting where some plants you can take cuttings from them and you can grow a whole plant whereas other plants you take a cutting and it will just die. Yeah. Um, so up until now we knew how to do this for tobacco we could take a bit of leaf and we could make as many tobacco pieces uh, plants from those pieces of leaves as we wanted to um, but we could never do it for Arabidopsis so we could put the Arabidopsis um, leaf pieces onto different media with different hormones and different light conditions and everything and they would just never grow into an Arabidopsis plant. Yes, and the reason for that is that in uh, Arabidopsis the leaves have uh, are very polyploid. That means the individual cells in a leaf have higher numbers or uh, have more copies than um, is usually found in, in Arabidopsis or what is necessary for the reproduction of Arabidopsis. So in the in the pollen and in the sort of in the seeds of Arabidopsis, you have these two copies of the genome. In the leaves, however, you can find um, uh, any number of copies of the genome. And then when you want to regenerate from this cell, uh, it, you get you run into into problems because you have more chromosomes and more copies of the information there than the cell expects and then it doesn't just doesn't work the okay, cell so just doesn't regenerate somehow the the plant and i guess we don't really know why somehow the plant knows that if it wants to be regenerating if it wants to be making new plants it only can have two copies and if you give it a situation where it's got like 20 copies it's just not going to do it is that is that correct yes that's 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 correct that um yeah, I, I just found a number in, in the paper. So it has up to 13 times the copies in the leaves, while when it goes into the setting of the seeds, it just has the two copies. Mm -hmm. So at one point when the, the cells decide what they become eventually, um, then the program, the cellular program that runs makes sure that there is not too much DNA in there. While in the leaves, it doesn't matter because the leaves, they just uh, divide to, to, to for growth, but they don't divide to come get into the next generation. So why, why would it be a problem to have too many copies for the regeneration? Uh, when the cells divide, then the... Um, the distribution of the, the, the different copies to the different cells doesn't work anymore because the entire cellular machinery is set up to just divide these two copies into the, the uh, upcoming cells. And um, that just doesn't happen, that doesn't work in leaves. You get then uh, uneven numbers of copies into the different, um, into the sort of daughter cells and that results in just no viable um, plant. It, it just can't survive afterwards. Okay, so what did the researchers do to get around this problem then? They just didn't use leaves. So, uh, which sounds very simple now, but 
um, what they actually did then is they used root tissue. So they grew the plants on a sort of net of a nylon net that was had holes that were just big enough that the the roots could penetrate through, and then they could peel off this net and then scrape off the roots from the bottom of the the net. And then they had uh, only root tissue, and in roots, uh, this effect of polyploidy, so this uh, additional copies of the genome, just uh, doesn't happen or does uh, happens much less frequently, uh, which results in these diploid, so these cells that have only two copies of the genome, just like the cells you would find in the seeds. So these cells have uh, the right amount of genetic material to be uh, regenerated into full plants. So it's all about finding the right starting material, basically. Exactly. And then from that right starting material, they had to develop um, a, a complete protocol to re regenerate that starting material uh, into full-grown plants. Um, and once they had done that, that so they, had, they were able to isolate the starting material, um, and then from that isolated starting material, they could uh, again grow entire new plants, now they could introduce the step in the middle, which is the actual transformation. And for that, they used uh, the biolistic approach. So they shot these little gold particles with the DNA in there. And then became uh, began the big uh, phase of trial and error. Um, so how I think I, like you mean to say educated trial and error. So like, like <laughs> very educated guesses. trial and error. Um, I just I'm just looking for the the table, but I know that uh, they what they needed to get um, a protocol working that reliably produced um, transformed chloroplast uh, plaster transformed plants. They shot in total a thousand five hundred times, so that means uh, one shot is one sort of experiment day where you prepare your plate and your gold particles and shoot at it. So it was one thousand five hundred times. They did that until they had a well working. Um, approach. I think I think here is the when we should mention that this Arabidopsis chloroplast transformation is is something that's been missing in the the environment in the molecular biology plant molecular biology environment for many many years. So this is a problem that people have been working on for like twenty plus years to get to. So this one thousand five hundred it's an insane amount of work to get to get to this point. Yes, the so the pressure to get that was so high that they really worked like i don't want to say that they spared no expense but pretty much they they, they spared no expense there was so much labor it's that like, went into it's there. a long-term goal it's it's one of these things where like you can do something in the short term and this is like really something that people have been working on with with yeah. the knowledge that if they did it even after 20 years it would be worth it for the entire community right and the way i imagine it is um fine because there's lots of different parameters at play here so we we said already that the the type of DNA that you introduce there um, there's a lot of knowledge about this but still it gives you many different options which ones work best then there are the uh, selection markers that we didn't even touch already um, that's the, a system um, where, that where you introduce a resistance gene into your plastid and then you grow your um, you regenerate your tissue under the um, selection pressure of an antibiotic that means it kills off all the cells that don't have that selection uh, this this um this gene that uh, confers resistance the resistance gene um, all the cells that don't have that are killed and only the ones that have successfully integrated that can survive and so you only get the ones um that are actually successfully transformed uh, for these resistance genes, several different options exist, and each of these uh, selection systems then also works at different 
conditions, so uh, concentrations of your antibiotic and time that you incubate it with. So you imagine there's lots and lots of parameters that you can touch there. Yeah, so the the resistance is is meaning that when you transform your plants, the the ones that are transformed survive, and the ones that didn't take up your DNA that have not been transformed, they die under the selection pressure. And pressure, and as you said, like not only are there different types of selection pressure, so you can use different antibiotics and therefore different resistant genes, which will help survive um, your plant survive under antibiotics. But there's also different concentrations of these antibiotics. But on top of that, there's also different ways in which to express this um, antibiotics resistance, this um, select, uh, what do we call it? The selection cassette. Yeah, this, the, uh, resistance the resistance gene. cassette My or goodness. resistance gene. And uh, yeah, you can express it at, with different promoters. So we touched a little bit earlier that way you could just express it, for example, in the flower tissue or early in development or late in development. So. And that's, that's a problem here because up until now, we've mostly been transforming leaves. So in tobacco, we've been transforming leaf material. So chloroplast, not just um, plastids um, or leucoplasts, I guess, or myeloplasts in the, in the roots. Um, so we know that certain um, expression elements work very well in chloroplasts and these green plastids. But as it turns out, because um, roots don't need to have the same expression of genes as, as leaves do, many of the promoters and um, the five prime elements so things that um, encourage both the transcription so making of rna and the translation the making of the proteins for these resistant genes they they work in the leaf but they just don't work in roots right so this was a major part of the experiment was to find out how this stuff works in the roots and the way i imagine the entire process is imagine you being on a basketball field and you want to uh, throw the ball through the hoop on, on the basketball field but you don't know where the hoop is and you don't know which way you are facing so you start throwing in random directions and if you do it often enough eventually you will hit it once more or less by chance or by doing educated guesses by figuring out uh, maybe you yeah you, you can sort of partially locate where you are on the field and then use educated guesses to figure out the direction that you throw in but once you hit it once then the question then the optimization continues and you figure out like how hard to throw the ball at what angle to throw it and then you narrow it down and once you have a, a, a set where you can reliably hit your goal you sort of figured out a protocol and this is what happened here as well so um, and I think that's in the title of the paper. They use the word efficient transformation. So it's the idea that not only can it be transformed, but it should be able to be done with a fairly low number of throws of your basketball. You should have yes. enough information about how far away and like where that hoop is that you only have to throw the ball like five times instead of every person who wants to do this experiment having to throw it 5,000 times. Yes. The... A tool is no use if you spend 10 years to achieve one mutation, because again, that would be then more than three PhD time <laughs> periods. My God. Um, I will from now on calculate everything in PhD times. Uh, um, so just to give you some numbers here, uh, they until they found the very first uh, transformed chloroplast, as uh, sort of the first time they hit that hoop in, at the basketball field, um, they had to throw it almost uh, or way over 1,000 times. So they did over 1,000 experiments, 1,000 shots where they tried to transform it, and they never saw, saw anything. They sometimes saw uh, uh, figured out stuff that works a little bit better because they could regenerate it a little bit further. Um, but 
um, they could never get one until that point. And then once they had that first one, then the optimization was uh, much more straightforward and it took um, roughly 250 additional shots until they, they figured out the protocol where in the end they only had to do 18 shots to get uh, three transformed lines. So you see like from, from that first time where they found it, they in that experiment with the conditions they tested, they tested 500 shots and got one positive result and then they optimized it until they only needed to do 18 shots to get three three hits so uh, one in six so and at that point it becomes a very useful tool because 18 other people can hopefully do it as well exactly 18 shots is something you can very easily do in your own time while 500 shots is would be a tool that nobody wanted to use it's too much of a cost both financially and also yeah from point of view of time which is a big thing in science and if you look at the, the table that I'm, I'm citing here that is in the paper that we will link in the description, um, there's one important step that they changed from this 500 shots to one positive result to essentially come to uh, one, uh, one positive in six shots. Um, and that is that they changed from the recipient line, so the line that they tried to transform from a classic wild type um, to a mutant that they created. And they created that using the CRISPR tool. And I don't want to really go deeply into the detail of um, how CRISPR works. I think that will come up in later episodes because it's a very hot topic right now. Because Yaram loves CRISPR. I, I really do love CRISPR. <laughs> um, but the the point that I want to make here is that the, the advent of a new tool um, that is really fast and reliable, um, that is CRISPR, helped to create yet another tool which is the plaster transformation here because um, a specific gene in the nucleus had to be knocked out so that the um, uh, the chloroplast could be transformed very efficiently um, before that there were some uh, sort of uh, repair mechanisms or some the, the chloroplast was more resilient to being transformed while this gene was active uh, and through CRISPR they could very Sorry. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> b without going into details, because that gets a little bit more complicated what this gene actually does, but they managed to sort of make the, the chloroplast to, to weaken it enough that it accepts this foreign DNA and integrates it into its genome. And they could only do that because they could use CRISPR in their approach. And so the, the resulting method that they use now is a combination of CRISPR and um, uh, of, of CRISPR and this new plaster transformation where they, you first cr create sort of a, a, a welcoming environment, then you introduce your foreign DNA, and then you can even undo that uh, original modification that you did, um, because once your transformation happened, it is stable and it stays there. And then you can even cross it back into, for example, the wild type, and then you have uh, a wild type plant with just one modification in your chloroplast, and that's the perfect tool for a lot of research questions. Yeah, so I think, is, is that all you wanted to talk about this paper today or? Yes, I think that's, like, yeah. I think one thing we should mention, um, not to show too much bias, although of course everybody has bias, um, is that there was another paper called Efficient Trans uh, Plastic Transformation in Arabidopsis um, that came out in 2017 from Paul Malaga's lab. And that had some similar features and um, this is kind of a, a lab which has been working on the same problem as I mentioned for also for many years um, because it's, it's a common um, problem that people have working been working on in the plant field um, so just to mention that they also have 
um, a paper discussing plasto transformation. Yeah. And there are there are some major differences um, between the the plants, um, the papers. I think one of the differences is the um, the cultivar or or the um, accession that's being used for the yep. Arabidopsis. But just check that one out as well. So that's in Plant Physiology in yep. September 2017 that was published. Um, and the main breakthrough of the paper that I presented today is that they um, resulted in fertile plants because this previous paper, these plants, they were could be transformed, mm -hmm. um, but they could not set seeds afterwards. So yeah. you would could only, um, uh, what, what's the word? You could only... Uh, you could make the plants and then study them in one generation, but then you're yeah. done. Or you could then create clones through tissue culture and sort of extend them uh, uh, through okay. that. But it it really limits your possibilities and it's really in, uh, labor intensive to maintain a line like this. While when you have seeds, you can put them in a in a storage tube and then keep it for three, four years and then continue to use them. So I think that's, there's like kind of three levels of transformation. The first one is that you get transformation. Um, but it's transient, so that means that you can express or or make changes um, on a very time-dependent manner. So, for example, expressing a, a GFP, this green fluorescent protein, um, in a cell, it's, it can happen, but it's only there for a certain amount of time. And the reason it's, it's time-dependent is because the DNA that you expressed um, is not stably incorporated into the genome. So then the second step is that you actually stably incorporate the DNA into the genome and that means it's now inheritable it's now actually DNA that can be passed to the next generation um, and this is what was already managed by this other group Malaga group um, in 2017 and then the final step is that the next generation actually happens as well so it might be stably integrated but you need to make sure that your plants are in fact fertile and, and get to the next stage so it's kind of the the three different um, levels of, of transformation I would say yes and only when you have all of them figured out then you have a tool that is really uh, can be apl uh, applied in many different labs and can be used to answer many different questions. Because whenever one of these things doesn't work yet, you have restrictions in your experimental design that will ver uh, limit you very much in the way you can uh, answer your questions. And so with this tool now available, I expect to see way more uh, research done in, in the chloroplast in Arabidopsis uh, because the I era of tobacco is finished, huh? I think it depends who you ask because tobacco has some advantages. Yeah, it has more biomass than Arabidopsis. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a That's true a crop. Arabidopsis is really a model. It, nobody's growing that as a crop. So there's some other there's some other things that tobacco has going for it. But it will definitely be now uh, used in way more labs. Uh, that's be, the To have a facility that can grow Arabidopsis is much cheaper than to have one that can grow tobacco just because you need much more space. Space requirements, yeah. And uh, space is very, very valuable. And if you can do the same experiment in a sixth of the space, then um, you you will want to use that. Uh, yes, though, so that's my paper. I'm. It's a very classic method paper, but I really like the approach that they took from uh, having some very good thoughts about what tissue to use and then from then uh, iterating and f uh, figuring out the details until they eventually find a solution that works well and reliable it's kind of a good scientific like process the idea of trying something and then trying and trying again until you get something that really works yep cool so these were our journal clubs um because of our breaks, I don't have any idea how much time we use because <laughs> the time in my software doesn't reflect real time. 
I'm going to introduce my favorite plant, which is not really my favorite plant, but um, should I say plant or plant? I think like plant is more posh. Plant. My favorite plant will yeah. be the, the next topic. Um, yeah, so we had this idea that we could just introduce one different plant every, um, <laughs> I can't stop, one different plant every time. Um, and I wanted to talk about Macrosamia ridleyi. Um, which is an Australian plant. So I'm really, again, pushing my agenda. I come from Australia, for those of you who don't know. Um, my accent is now very messed up from being too long in Germany and speaking some sort of weird mixture of all the Englishes which um, exist at our very international institute. But I'm originally Australian and I have this really strong soft spot for Australian plants, specifically those which come from the southwest of Australia, which is my region. Um, and the southwest of Australia is super special because it's actually a biodiversity hotspot. Um, and biodiversity hotspots are these regions which were defined by a conservation group, Conservation International. Um, they were actually described in a, in a scientific paper, I think maybe 20 years ago even now. And the idea is to look on the planet for areas which have, that represent the most species diversity while also representing the least amount of land and also representing um, threatened areas with the general overview that we want to try and save as much of as many of the organisms on our planet as possible but of course we have limited resources so these people were trying to define um, where to best put our resources into to conserve mm -hmm. as much as possible and maybe Yoram you can look up um, who the original paper was by um, Global uh, Biodiversity Hotspots it's called Originally, there were 25 hotspots, I think, um, defined, or maybe 24, and now there are 35. But over and all, all these um, these conservation biodiversity hotspots, they represent only about 2.3% of the land on Earth, and yet they represent something like 40% of um, the vascular plant species that we have on this Earth as endemic. And endemic means that you can find this plant species in that area, but you can't find it in other areas. So it means it's really important to save those areas um, because if not, if you lose that space, then you will lose those plants forever. Um, and these conservation biodiversity hotspots, part of the reason I like them is because they're defined based on um, vascular plants or plants as opposed to animals, which a lot of us have a very strong bias towards animals because, hey, we're animals. Um, but as it turns out, if you look for representation or overrepresentation of plant species, you end up having overrepresentation of animals um, just because the plants are um, what builds the ecosystem, right? The more plants you have, the yeah. more possibility you have to have different types of animals. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I just found a paper, the biodiversity hotspots for conservation priorities is for by Norman Myers et al. It's from Nature Myers. and from February 2000. Yeah, and I think there's been an update more recently. So I think the original number was 24 or 25, and now there's 35 of them. And there might even be more. I saw that another region of my home country was introduced as well. Um, the downside of these hotspots is one of the reasons that they're, um, they need to have priority for conservation is because, firstly, they have to have lots of endemic plant species, but secondly, they have to be very threatened. Um, so the second um, caveat for being a, a biodiversity hotspot is that less than 30% of the the land um, that was originally there has is left now. So they've already been quite damaged, which is sad. Anyway, back to my story. I want to speak quickly about a species which is endemic to Southwest Australia. It's called Macrosamia ridleyi. And it's basically a kind of palm. So it's actually a cycad, but it looks very much like these kind of um, California sunset boulevard palms, 
except imagine that all of the the trunk of the pump has been cut off so you just have these like fronds sticking up from the earth um and i like this species i choose this species basically because when i was a kid i lived um next to a park and at the end of the park there was this huge um, eucalyptus tree and behind this eucalyptus tree there was one of these palms and one of the peculiar um features of the macrosamia is that for reasons that I couldn't actually find online, it produces this kind of fluff. Like it makes this, mm-hmm. um, at the very base, it produces a kind of um, a seed like cone thing. But there's also some like fluffy mixture there, which is kind of a mixture between like, like it looks like the stuff that you pick up on your vacuum cleaner, like cat fur and dead skin cells. But like, as <laughs> lint. Can, yeah, lint. It's plant like, lint. Plant lint. <laughs> Macrosamia lint. Um, but as a kid, obviously, we loved this. So we used to collect this um, stuff. And uh, okay, so I chose it because of that. And then I also chose it because it was one of the featured articles on Wikipedia a couple of weeks ago when I was looking into <laughs> this. Um, and the the fact that they talked about was a, that um, this plant had um, these cones and it has edible parts in the cones which can be eaten by people but it can only be eaten by people after a certain preparation process. And of course, the Aboriginals, the Indigenous people of Australia, so the original landholders, they knew how to prepare the food properly. Um, but the Wikipedia, the featured article was discussing the fact that when um, the British first came to Australia, they didn't know how to do this preparation. <laughs> so they tried to um, eat the plant and they got very, very ill indeed. And it could ex- even um, result in death. So. Mm. I'm quoting from Wikipedia here. Ingestion of the unprepared seed induced vomiting after several hours that were described as putting those afflicted as so bilious there was hardly any difference between us and death, which I think is very beautiful. Um, And it's also something which is very dangerous to cattle. So if you have one of these plants on your property and you also have cattle, you have to remove it because um, they will get something called rickets, which is, or, or the wobbles is the informal name, <laughs> the um, which is basically when the cattle eat this poisonous plant um, and then become very ill and in fact die. And it's because um, the cone produces something called um, macrosamin and uh, cycosin, which are um, toxins basically. And this is also one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this plant in this very brief way. You can go and check out like the Wikipedia or look online yourself. but. Um, one really cool thing about Australian plants is that they've developed these poisons as many, many plants do, but because all of the cattle and the sheep and um, foxes and rabbits and all of these introduced species didn't co-evolve with these plants, they can't deal with them. Um, so in Australia now we have a big problem with rabbits and, and foxes, we have big pl- uh, plagues of introduced organisms which are hurting our, our native marsupials um, and native animals. And one of the reasons we can get rid of these these pests is by poisoning them with um, poisons that come from Australian plants um, because the native animals don't get poisoned by these plants, but the introduced animals um, do. And this is not related to the macrosamia, which I talked about today, but it's it's kind of on a similar theme. So there's something called um, 1080. And this is a poison that is used against foxes um, to try and kill off the foxes because they they kill all of our native marsupials. Um, and it's developed from a native kind of pea form. And again, as I said, all of the native animals can eat the the um, bait with this poison, this 1080 poison in it. They're fine because they've co-evolved, so they have the defenses, um, whereas the introduced animals die from this. So I thought that was kind of an interesting Yeah, it's a very up. clever way to, to manage like ecosystems like that. Yeah. 
Cool. Thank I you. What yeah. was the name of the plant again? It's Macrosamia ridleyi. So it basically yeah. looks like a palm. And the the final fun fact about this is that like in Australia when we do um our Catholic celebration, so Palm Sunday, we don't have real palms, so we use this guy instead <laughs> the of real palm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't eat it, but we like throw it on the ground. Um, yeah, as, as a sort of um, uh, hobby chef, uh, I want to know like, what is the preparation method to detoxify it? It's, does it specify? Is it like a special special cooking procedure? I think you would have to ask somebody who knows. I had um, okay. a look on the Wikipedia. Honestly, I could have followed this up more, but I didn't. Um, no, but it's... Yeah, it's I think. Short. Yeah, it said properly prepared, but I imagine it's something. So, like for cassava, for example, um, when you prepare this, you have to uh, like uh, pound it up, so grind it up, and then you have to leave it to um, settle for like just leave it out in the open, and it has all these kind of cyanide-based poisons, and they kind of mm. like evaporate or something. I'm not really sure. So, they're just by leaving them for oh, 24 the oxygen hours, maybe destroys it. Yeah, or, they yeah. just disappear. Whereas, yeah, yeah. Okay, and I have a final kind of present for you, Yoram, based on something I saw online that I thought you would be really into. Yes. Um, this I saw via, I think, the Nature Briefing. So it's an email that yeah. gets sent around by Nature. Um, and it's a, um, a paper that's being uploaded onto BioArchive. So mm -hmm. BioArchive is this place where people can put experimental data or plans or anything which is pre-publication. Um, just as a way to get information out to the public more rapidly. And it's a bit of a new thing. I mean, it's not so new, but people are still not quite sure how to use it because you want to make sure that you can get your work published, that you're not like, yeah. that somebody else doesn't take your, your glory of publication. Um, but it's also really important to communicate quickly. Okay, um, and this work is called a 3D printed hand-powered centrifuge for molecular biology. DIY science. <laughs> exactly. It's DIY science, which is like one of Yoram's favorite topics. And it's also frugal science, which is something yeah. that the um, the leading author commented that he's very interested in. Um, so basically, yeah, they released the, the plans of a centrifuge. So maybe Yoram can just say yeah. what a centrifuge is. So yeah, a centrifuge is a very essential tool in molecular biology, which is pretty much like a, a spinny, runny thing. It's uh, a spinny, runny thing. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, you rotate a sample um, And then you have the centripetal force that pushes down on it. And it's pretty much the same as if you let your your coarse ground coffee with water stand and the coffee ground settle based on earth gravity. But you do that with uh, like a thousand times or 10,000 times of earth gravity. So stuff that doesn't usually settle suddenly settles then as well in sediments. And you use that for DNA preparations, for lots of really basic for molecular tools. Yeah. yeah, it's... It's for separation, really, and this yeah. is like the key for every single molecular biology yes. process. You need at some point to separate one thing from another, yes. and one of the easiest ways to do it is based on mass, and then you use a centrifuge. Yes, and it's also one of the most dangerous things to build yourself, because once you have something <laughs> that spins really fast, uh, any tiny um, discrepancies in the discrepancies in the in the weight distribution will make it run uneven, and then just break the axis that it's on and fly through the room. And there have been like nowadays the centrifuges also in the labs are quite safe but I've heard stories from in, in physics departments where they have something called ultra centrifuges really big centrifuges that go very very fast yes that do like 100,000 G so 100,000 times the earth uh, gravitational pull um, stuff like that and then if they had a failure 
then this uh, the rotor sort of thing that spins would just fly through the door and through walls it would really create mass havoc and there have been like casualties and stuff from that but luckily in recent years these things became safer because of like it detects when something goes wrong i actually have to say a very dear friend of mine told me a story about how there was a a malbalance in his um centrifuge one of the tubes basically broke and changed the the balance configuration and the whole thing just leapt through a wall like yeah just smashed through a plaster wall because it's going so fast that once it's unbalanced it's it's moving yeah in space and time and that's why i'm always very like careful with diy centrifuges (laughs) but but um I think it's good that people now like publish sort of safer plans, like something well, where people don't just put like an electric motor to a spinning disc and put their samples in there and hope for the best. Like, okay, so this is not a spinning. This is not an electric motor. It's not a spinning disc. It's basically um, the structure of a kind of. It looks like a wheel, and you mount your tubes on the wheel, and then you have a kind of string um, attached. And it's basically this game you played as a kid, where you twist the strings, mm-hmm. and then it unwinds really, really, really fast. Yeah. So you're kind of like, I'm, I'm doing very um how i'm like flapping my wings in the air like flapping my arms (laughs) trying to show up um but it's basically a very simple thing that you can 3d print it's very very cheap um and they did already some test cases where they showed that you could use it they were using it in the amazon rainforest they obviously couldn't take equipment with them so they had this Mm. handheld thing um and they showed that it got up to six thousand rotations per minute um and they were able to separate DNA from other matter, which they could then use to sequence um, some species. But the second um, use for this is, for example, for um, teaching purposes, where you have a whole classroom of kids and you don't want to bring your 10,000 euro centrifuge into the classroom. So instead you have this thing which is not only cheaper and like more widely available to the public, but it's also something where people can actually see how it works because with a normal centrifuge, you shut the lid, you press start and it goes, but this one, you're making the movement yourself. So yeah. you really see what's happening. So that's really cool. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention that um, the first um, author of this paper, it's Bigath Vali, and I really, I'm sorry if I said that wrong. From what I could see, I was trying to follow him on Twitter. He seems to be a high school student who's super into this kind of DIY frugal science and also um, published from this lab from the same group and from the same first author is an electroporator, which is supposed to cost something like $2 um, to make. So electroporation actually touches on what Yoram was talking about now, which is transforming organisms. Um, basically, if you want to transform very small organisms like bacteria, you use an electroporator to basically electrocute the bacteria, and this makes them. Um, it pretty much makes holes in the it cell. It makes wall. holes in in the membrane, not the oh, wall. Yeah. The membrane of the bacteria, and that lets your DNA that you're putting in there sneak through when there's a, a membrane. But obviously, an electroporator is like a, a, a lab equipment, and it's quite expensive. And they managed to produce one, which I think it uses pens or something. You should really look this up online. But we it costs put some links down in yeah, the yeah, show Yeah, um, yeah. They have it on their Twitter page, and it costs like two euros as well. So I thought, like, firstly, it's cool that you have a centrifuge that can be used for science communication. Secondly. 3D printing, pretty cool. And thirdly, like this group seems to be invested in the idea of frugal science, which I just think is, it's amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. all no, in all. It's, it's really cool. Like recently there have been a couple of of groups that uh, really took apart traditional lab equipment and figured out ways to do their own. They have like some people built uh, a thermocyclers, which is used for PCR, another very important method. Um, then recently what I saw uh, people doing is um, big sequencer machines uh, where bought 
like some 10, 15 years ago, there lots of labs bought these big sequences and they use a laser to scan their samples and then they can figure out the DNA sequences there. It's, it's much more complicated than that, but essentially that there's some optics in there and the laser and the detector. And so they managed to reverse engineer these old machines that universities and labs get rid of now because newer technology is better and cheaper and faster. And they use these machines that nobody won't want it anymore um, where the, the manufacturer didn't want to give any information on the internals anymore so they really basically reverse engineered the entire thing and made uh, turned it into a fluorescence microscope mm. which is really to me like a fluorescence microscope to me is a completely different device from a sequencer but they figured out that essentially the part in the DNA sequencer that does the detection is the same as in a fluorescence microscope and they're figuring out now a way to create like a kit that people can use it f uh, themselves like if they find uh, one of these these machines that are often basically free because universities don't want know what to do with them anymore um then they, they turn them into a very capable tool so yeah there's lots of cool stuff like this do we want to touch on the dunning-kruger before we end yeah i think we should just mention like we love this idea because science like we understand that there needs to be very specialty equipment for doing molecular biology and um the specialty equipment costs money but we also like that there are kind of um like copies or dupes where yeah. you can make it cheaper so it's more accessible which is a really a big problem in, in research right now the accessibility so open access um the ability yeah. to to even read the research that happens is a big deal right now um but also to just show the public how things are done because obviously it's it's very hard to care about something if you don't see it and i think a lot of the science that we do now is behind closed doors which again it's how it has to be based on regulations and, and financial um all sorts of issues but it's kind of cool when there's like this these yeah. links to, to the public and it's yeah. yeah especially when you see the you try to buy such a machine and you see the prices and everything and then somebody co comes like around as like tens of thousands of euros you guys it's really i mean there's a reason for the the high cost and everything but it's really cool when you see people reverse engineered and figure out like much easier more affordable ways and just have a little bit of fun with the science as well yes okay dunning kruger dunning kruger <laughs> okay one the, the last bit of this um, episode is a paper that's uh, I mean this is, doesn't really have any tri uh, sort of category or bigger topic on it but we just thought it's too good to to let it drop um, it's also from from nature it's a uh, uh, from nature human behavior behavior it's a uh, in the letters section so it's not a full article but it's still uh, published in a um, scientific journal. It's by F uh, Philip Fernbach, Nicholas Light, Sidney Scott, Joel Inbar, and Paul Rosen. And it's just from a couple of weeks ago, yeah? Yes, this is a very recent. Um, unfortunately, I don't see on this PDF, I don't see the publishing date but it's it's very recent i think it has been last week or the week before and um, you might have you might have already seen it go around the social media because it was pretty i mean in our circles it was pretty big like the scientists yes, were kind it, of amused. yes in the uh, because the the title of the paper is extreme opponents of genetically modified foods know the least but think they know the most um and the title pretty much says it all. They they did some uh, surveys in different countries and different demographics, but it was all representative uh, surveys where they asked people first some questions about the technicalities of GM foods. So you should just explain very quickly. Genetically modified is what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, genetically so. modified foods. So um, something that's discussed a lot. And as a political background, this is stuff that's really readily available. For example, in the US, also in Australia, we have a lot of like soya bean um, canola for 
for oil. But it's, also in, in, in China, in South America. In many countries, but Europe is very against genetic modification. So there's there's very little access to GMOs here. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of political opposition as well. Yes. But also in the US, there's a big movement against GMOs. They're, they're, they don't have, like, the, it's not represented on a political level as much, but there's also a strong um, movement of, of activists against um, GM foods or genetically modified foods there. And so in this survey, what they just did, they asked them to, to some sort of like a, 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 squi a quiz at school, some um, basic facts uh, about GM foods to test their knowledge on the topic. And um, then they only also asked them how much they agree with the use of GM foods. And how dangerous they perceive them to be, and yeah? Yes, how dangerous they, uh, so how, how opposed they are. And then also how much they think they know about the topic. So there's this self-perceived knowledge on the topic. And the result is a pretty classic Dunning-Kruger effect, where the people who know the least think they know the most. Um, they self-assess them to know even more than the people who are actually in favor of GM foods. Um, they they self-assess them uh, themselves lower than the people who are opposed to GM foods, who self-assess them the highest in the entire thing. And also in measurable uh, objective knowledge, um, the people who are the most opposed rank the, the lowest. So um, you you especially, you sort of see this, this effect here. Often you've probably as perceived yourself like you know something about a topic but because you know so much about it you know all the things you don't know yet and so you your perceived own knowledge uh, is lower than what it actually is while if you don't know a lot about the topic you don't know all the unknowns and so your own perceived knowledge of the topic is higher because you think it's easy like gm crops are bad um full stop and uh, this is just like a nice little paper that illustrates just that. And we should mention that I mean I think there was only fifteen questions which assessed the scientific literacy of the people. So it's and there was a couple of hundred people from they looked at the U.S., France, and Germany. I think um, and in all of these groups they saw a negative correlation between the amount that they thought they knew and the amount that they actually knew if they were very against GMOs. And that negative correlation wasn't there if they were less against GMOs. Um, but again, the sample size is not huge. I think it's 100 people or a couple of hundred people. Um, and the the question, the amount of questions is not huge either. So just yes. as a few caveats, there there is not a, a very large scale study, but it's just kind of a fun, like yeah. something to think about. They, and uh, the last little bit about this that I found quite interesting is that they also did the same uh, setup, uh, but with climate change uh, as the topic for discussion uh, instead of GMO. And there the effect was uh, less than f with uh, GM foods. So yeah, people they didn't really who deny find this negative correlation there. Exactly. Actually. So people who uh, deny the climate change, they uh, don't think as much that they know more than they actually do than people who oppose GMOs. This is just like a little... Um, yeah, go check out the paper if you're interested in it. As we said, there are some, some it's an early study, but um, we thought it was fun. Yes. And with that, um, we're through. We I wanted to sign off by saying like, go hug a plant today, but then I did this like touch sensitive topic. So now I think don't hug a plant today is the take home. <laughs> yes. Like don't it touch your plants, leave your plants alone, guys. Don't, don't stress a plant. Yeah, don't overwater them either. I think like if you have indoor plants, you're probably overwatering them. <laughs>
and my, my <laughs> i i don't know enough about plant care to to comment on that but i know that if you want to know more about the podcast and uh, our website just go to plantsandpipettes.com there you find more information um, follow us on twitter we are at uh, plants pipettes um, on twitter we are on instagram at plants and pipettes yeah and we are also on facebook with some weird long url um so just go, uh, google plants and pipettes like oh facebook yeah. google plants and pipettes whatever that exactly. is. Um, i'm not the tech person in this guys and so yeah we're looking forward to um have you listened to us again in the future okay stop talking now we need to stop talking now bye bye <laughs> God, now I've just like I've just screwed the a little bit further. Yeah. I just it's like it's nice on, on the waveform. It's just suddenly like explosion. <laughs> it's like what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> I shouldn't. I mean, that's that's our role. It's like I'm not allowed to touch the technical equipment. I'm not allowed to like use the website. Like these are just things where like I mean, you can you have full admin rights. Like you could. That was a mistake, here. That was, <laughs> this is gonna go wrong very soon. Just you like can, you can do everything. I I like what I really have to do now um, is set up a backup thing so that if something so if happens we can it, he means if i break it if something happens like this is like really polite high context talk for like if he can break no, no. the, the I, website again i i mean i <laughs> fucked up the twitter within like five minutes of creating it so guys you guys i don't know if you heard already but yaram thought it would be really really funny if when he like um registered us for twitter then they asked him his age and he thought oh our our beautiful website is being birthed today it's it's very organic and so he put that the age of plants and pipettes as like zero like the, the date of birth was today and twitter just immediately locked the account and was like hey dude you're not over 13 you can't use it and he had to what submit i had to send a photo of my id card and wait for 48 hours until they cleared it and were like oh you're actually not a newborn baby that just registered to twitter today i did hear that Twitter is going to be really big with newborn babies in 2019. Like we yeah. will start that trend. Like nobody will listen to our plant <laughs> podcast, but we'll start like a newborn babies use Twitter trend. That will be something that will come out of this.